and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast, the show where we explore the latest trends and innovations in the world of financial technology. I'm your host, Trevor Prince, and before beginning today's episode, the last of 2023, I wanted to take the time to thank you, our listeners, for a great year. On behalf of all of our hosts and the broader Wharton Fintech community, I wanted to extend our appreciation for your continued support over the past 12 months. We've had a great lineup of guests, and we're looking forward to continuing to bring you quality content in 2024. With all that said, I'm thrilled to have Tommy Nicholas, the co-founder and CEO of Alloy, as my guest. Alloy is a platform that provides banks and fintechs with a unified operating system for risk, fraud, and credit evaluation and monitoring in retail financial services. In today's episode, we discuss Tommy's background, Alloy's business model, and what it took to scale the company, Tommy's outlook on Alloy and fintech heading into 2024, and much more. Hey, Tommy, welcome to the Warden Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Good to talk to you, Trevor. Thanks for having me. I'm here in lovely Union Square, uh, New York City, just uh, on 11th and University, just south of Union Square. Nice. That's a great area. How long have you guys had your offices there? Yeah, so we we got this office in early 2021. We were like very early to the scene and, hey, let's get back and, and at least you know have an office presence and rebuild uh, our, our IRL team structure. And so we were really lucky. The process in March, it was 2021, was such a moment in time because it went from like, just take it. You don't even need to pay us money. And within a couple of weeks of us kind of thinking about bidding on it, it went to like a very competitive process wow. because like overnight companies were trying to figure out how to get back into the whether they wanted to or get back and this type of office in this type of area, like not in one of the really, really tall buildings, not in Midtown or Fidei, we're just like, that was the only kind of building, especially like fast growing tech companies wanted. So it's like a very, I have very vivid memories of realizing the price, like the price that they were saying was going up every single day and being like, we better lock this in. So anyway, in summary, two and a half years, something like that. Nice. Nice. Well, would love to hear a little bit more about uh, kind of Alloy's history in a little bit, but maybe for our listeners that that aren't as familiar with your background, maybe you could please provide just a, a little overview of your career kind of up to this point. You know, I don't really have a career, so that's that's the easy part. We'll, we can just talk about Alloy, but I will give you a little bit of how I got into Alloy. But I always like to, you know, when people say what's your background, I'm like, not much besides the company. <laughs> like honestly, I was I, not much. Um, so I went to the, I'm from a, a town called Richmond, Virginia. I thought I would never leave Richmond, Virginia, other than a brief stint 60 miles up the road in Charlottesville for school. Um, I, I studied humanities in school, like history, African-American studies. I, I didn't study anything related to what I do now. No computer science, nothing like that. But I had programmed computers as a kid a little bit. Um, but I don't even think I realized that's what it was at the time because it was just like trying to figure out how to make games and stuff like that. Um, I graduated from school uh, in 2011 and learned that humanities majors aren't the hottest commodity on the job market. Um, and you know, decided to. I, I had done. I had started a startup in college um, that I didn't realize was a startup. Basically, just thought I was trying to build a thing and, and ended up starting a startup. You know. Maybe you could even argue it wasn't even a startup because it never made any money. But the point is, I had kind of gotten into the startup world. I taught myself how to code. Um, and I became a, a very low-level professional software developer for about a year, uh, which I actually loved. I love 
writing software. Um, I transitioned uh, into being into basically doing um, like agency work that I sourced myself uh, as more of like a product person, and eventually got recruited to. Um, there's like a lot of twists and turns to that three or four years that we can skip yeah. over. Eventually, I got recruited um, after having done some work that that was you know known to people around around Richmond. I got recruited to be the head of product at a, a payments company that was being started by by uh, by a group in in Richmond. Um, that company did uh, guaranteed ACH payments, so moving money over the ACH rails, but actually guaranteeing the money would clear and not be charged back. And uh, very interesting, very interesting company for a lot of different reasons. What's important about that part of the story, though, is that first of all, where I met my co-founder Laura, who was a far more accomplished. Like when you say, "What's your background?" She has like a real story of like things she's accomplished and stuff she's done. So she was a, a real, more accomplished, credible person. Um, I met her. She came and led sales at that company, and so we got to know each other and started, you know, started uh, our our working relationship, which has now been substantially the the you know, relationship I've had for my entire career as a co-founder. So Laura and I's partnership, uh, you know, starting Alloy, but also previously, has been super important. And it's also where I got a chance to work with my our other co-founder Charles um, and our fourth founding team member Scott, both of whom had gone to high school with me. Um, but we had never formally worked together, other than Charles helped uh, helped start and found the you know quote unquote startup I had in college. The reason that we all st- sort of basically decided to start Alloy is we were spending all this time building a guaranteed ACH payments company, and what we thought we were going to do was process payments. We thought payments company going to process payments. That's what we're going to do. We're going to build user interfaces that customers used to say, this is what I want to pay for. We're going to build payment rails. We're going to make sure reconciliation happens. That's what we think we're going to build. And what ended up happening is we spent all of our time, basically all of our time on risk, fraud, and credit problems. Uh, Actually, really risk, you could just call those risk problems, but fraud, AML, and credit problems in particular. Are our users using our product to commit money laundering? How are we staying compliant with our bank? Are our users using our product to commit fraud and steal money from us or our partner banks or the merchants that we're working with? And you know, will our users default on their um, default on their ACH in this case, which would just meant like three days from now, will they have the money they claim they have? Um, different kind of credit problem, but still a little bit of a credit problem. That's what we spent all our time on. So everything we built, everything operationally, when I walked into work, like that's what I was looking at. That's what I was looking for. Are we getting defrauded today? Are we are we sure we're compliant with you know BSA money laundering regulations? What's our three day you know clearing time credit exposure? Um, and I was just very struck by the fact that no matter how far and wide we looked, there weren't like systems that could solve those problems for us. There were tools that were built to solve individual parts of the problem. There were fraud prevention startups. There were credit bureaus that have credit data. You know there were things like Plaid and Finicity. For account connectivity there were lots of different things but there wasn't an operating system or like a core system that would just be like the thing you install to to make this happen and every other thing in financial services has a core system you know payments have payment processors uh issuers have issuers right uh the cores in banks themselves as the core ledgers and reconciliation mechanisms you wouldn't expect to construct piecemeal any other part of the fintech stack but when it came to making decisions about the risks that users pose their their banks and other fintech products 
there just wasn't a core system. We really felt like there needed to be one. We had a point of view about how to build one. And so we started um, Alloy to solve that problem. Gotcha. That's that's really helpful. And I think transitions well into, uh, into I guess, talking about Alloy a little bit more. Uh, appreciate the the humility on your background, but I would say it's it's still still impressive. So appreciate you kind of walking us through that. For our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with Alloy and, and how your company works, I guess, maybe a, a brief overview of kind of what your product set started as, how it's developed over time, and just a general background about kind of the growth there would be would be helpful. Yeah. So we are, I think, an interesting company, at least in this respect, um, which is that the product that we sell now is way better than the product that we sold in 2015, but it is structurally very similar. And the vision has not changed almost at all because from day one, we really think about this like two by three matrix. There's originating accounts, checking accounts, credit cards, whatever it is, and making sure the users are not fraudulent, not credit, not within the credit risk that you want to take on if that applies, which only applies to credit products and are not money launderers. And then monitoring those accounts for those same three things. Um, we thought they weren't fraud, fraudulent. Are they fraudulent now? We uh, we suspected they were not money launderers, but has that changed? Um, we, we gave them a credit line, but is that the right credit line? So it's like origination and ongoing fraud, AML and credit. That's what we... That's that was our vision from the day one was to solve all of those problems. And our mission within that is to make those problems something you can just install a product to do. And by installing that product, you get future-proofed access to anything that you would want to do in those domains forever without having to write any additional code or ideally make like too many additional commercial relationships. If you install Alloy, you get access to the latest and greatest products from the entire ecosystem because we integrate with everything in the ecosystem. We integrate with over 60 different companies and over 200 different products across credit, AML, and fraud. We make those available to our customers to build workflows and decision flows on, hey, the customer submitted their credit card application. What are the steps they go through? What third-party vendors are called? How do we make a decision about all of that? If it goes to a manual review, how do we click the button and say, this is approved and move on to the next step like that entire process? Um, that's our role. Our role is not to build a individual part of a stack. We're not building a credit bureau. We're not building a fraud prevention, uh, fraud scoring you know, tool. We're not building a sanctions monitoring product. We integrate and orchestrate those into effective decision-making processes. Um, and that's always been the mission. However, when we started in 2015, that's a lot to take on. And what we really did, even though the product could kind of do those things I just described, what we really did was orchestrate um, fraud prevention and, and know your customer decision-making workflows for mid-sized banks usually, and then um, fintech companies who wanted one API to make to make those decisions. Uh, and we largely did that in a... Uh, we largely only facilitated that in a data-centric way, meaning if you have customer data and we can go source data from third parties, we can make a decision on it. Where we are now is obviously dramatically more advanced in all of those things, but also very focused on you know building um, a lot of more, a lot more like biometric for forward um, orchestration things. So, for example, not just taking data on a person and then pulling data from a 
credit bureau, for example, in making a decision, but also things that require the customer to do an additional action. Hey, because we got this alert from a fraud service, you need to take a picture of yourself with holding your ID or any number of different things that there are dozens of vendors that we integrate that do those jobs and we orchestrate and make available those types of things. So that's one thing that's changed a lot. Another thing that's changed a lot is we've gotten really, 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 really focused on post account opening, post card origination, post whatever it is, um, management of these processes. So being able to institute step up verification and fraud detection, not just when the customer opens an account, but when they cancel their card and ask to get a new one at a new address or log in from a new location uh, and they may be accessing things that they shouldn't access. Let's make sure it's still you. Everything post-origination, um, applying for a new credit line, like let's reassess the credit for this person. We've gotten very focused on those things. And then I think the third is just like really going to the nth degree to build all the features that make this process seamless for our customers so that when they get on a demo with us, no matter like they're they're expecting to see a more limited set of things that they're going to have to build additional tools around and what we like to challenge ourselves and even you know the folks we work with is like no we have comprehensively solved this problem everything from the the, the third parties you need the decisions you need to make the orchestration of that but also the audit trails the case management the reporting all of that um, the testing uh, you know all of it can be self-contained within alloy and, and that's what the last eight and a half nine years of my life have been spent building Sounds like a pretty exciting journey. I, I guess it, just for to dive a little bit deeper, are you guys mainly still focused on kind of consumer, know your customer and monitoring, or do you also look at corporate KYC and AML processes? Um, kind of what's your thought process there? What's your current capability, um, and where do you think that's going? Yeah, it's it's a good uh, it's good to make this distinction. So we are focused on what I call retail financial services. So those are like either the products that you and I may use, that's mm-hmm. brokerage, credit card, checking account, Venmo, like cash app, like whatever it is, we're focused on that part of the world or the equivalent products that SMBs use. So that'd be like small business cards, um, corporate cards, stuff like that. What we're not focused on is like large corporate treasury management, syndicated loan, like KYC in a, you know, you know, Morgan Stanley's wealth management arm, um, uh, KYC type capability, we could help with that. I think we could be very helpful. It's just not where we spend a lot of our time. And that does end up just being a little bit of a, you know, doing the, doing the sort of like risk rating on whether you want to do a, give a loan to like the Coca-Cola of Indonesia. I don't even know if there, there is one. It's just a very different like process and workflow, um, compared to something that needs to be super available, super real time, really intensive done at massive scale like those are like low scale high complexity problems Mm -hmm. what we do is high scale moderate complexity really high stakes that's like what we're really really good at you give somebody a twenty thousand dollar credit line super high stakes because you could lose the twenty thousand dollars um but it can be automated it's uh, a sufficiently well understood enough problem if you have the right tools that you could automate it and you could do it at scale but the stakes are really really high versus you know, deciding to bank Coca-Cola is actually pretty low stakes, but extraordinarily complex because of the number of things. That yep. you have to do. Uh, yeah. And a lot of idiosyncrasies there that um, you need to look at that 
you know, it, maybe aren't as easy to kind of build a process around and require right. a little bit more of kind of a hands-on approach. Gotcha. And humans are good at doing it. And, you know, yep. like one of the things about fraud prevention is there, there, even if you had infinite bodies, they would still want a ton of technology aid because, you know, tech, the, the tech, especially that we work with is just capable of doing things that people can't necessarily do. Like, you know, uh, building machine learning models is an extraordinary uh, enabler of even human review, just to be able to see, you know, what what actually is anomalous about this person. You know, be able the ability to have somebody who's not in front of you do perform a biometric function, like take a picture of their face and their ID, and see if those things match up. See if they're you know live, or, uh, and ability to prove that they're actually there and physically present. These are all things that are really hard uh, without technological aid. So you know that's. We're, we're in the process of automating, but even in cases where we're augmenting human review, you know, a huge amount of uh, value that we can bring. Yeah. I guess shifting gears a, a little bit, um, be interested to hear about the dichotomy that I understand y'all may have had in your early days between the positive feedback, the really positive feedback you were getting from customers and clients, and maybe some of the challenges in the, the fundraising and, and investor environment, um, maybe just additional color there. Kind of how you guys weathered that storm and and how you've kind of grown to today through that yeah so we started the company in 2015 and um we were struck pretty early by when we would describe at least when we would describe the problem that we were trying to solve and we would show early versions of the product the response we got from day like from truly literally day one was like that is a needed thing we have got to that is a huge problem and it's a known problem and it's a problem that's going to get that's going to intensify in its um in the the market need because as financial services products move into be increasingly digital um this is going to be the thing that is where the rubber hits the road on to as to whether that works that was great very exciting to hear starting a company everyone wants what you're building that's good there um investors largely did not understand what we were talking about and that was understandable and there's a couple reasons it was understandable one is we weren't very good at describing it so i me in particular like i i could describe it to somebody who wanted to buy it because i was very in the weeds really understood like how it would connect into their systems and and what the exact little problems they were having were but zooming out it kind of seemed like a small problem because the way we would describe it was like we would use words like it's a kyc system and they would be like how is that different than the existing KYC systems and why do you need an orchestration thing? Like you're not even building a KYC solution. You're building like orchestration to manage different KYC solutions. Like why is that a big problem? Um, is digital financial services even big enough to support this kind of thing? Like it, it just was hard to, it was hard to see the way we were particularly describing it. It was hard to see it as a really big thing that would be really, really important. And so, you know, fortunately two for at least I'll give two folks credit for seeing through my horrible explanation of the time of what we did and seeing a much bigger problem to solve. One was Jenny Fielding at Techstars. She's a super badass, um, always can see through, uh, you know, maybe the bad explanations founders are giving for their products for what the bigger problem may be. And she had us join her Techstars class uh, here in New York City. That's how I moved from Richmond to New York. I thought that would be a three-month thing. And nine years later, here we are. Um, and then Brad's for Luga Primary Ventures um, and uh, and the team there did an extraordinary amount of first part first hand research with potential buyers 
um, who were either in their LP base or who they knew and, uh, and, and did sort of tease out that there was like a bigger problem to solve here. And they invested uh, when we were in Techstars. So we raised a million and a half dollars in our seed round. Um, I can't even tell, like, it was so extraordinary to me to raise a million and a half dollars, a million and a half dollars. I can't believe it. Uh, this will last forever. You know, it feels like now looking like that's like a pre 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 seed for uh yeah for uh for a founder now but to us it felt like a really big deal um the valuation we raised that would blow your mind it was so low uh compared to what people raise at now but so we raised a million and a half dollars we had a couple of customers we had i think maybe three committed customers two of them ended up being going live they were very small but our third was like the big flagship customer we were like hanging our hat on being a design partner for um, and they never launched their product that they had bought Alloy to to serve. It just never launched it. It's something I didn't think of as a potential risk. Like, what if our customers just don't launch their digital products they're buying Alloy to facilitate? That is what happened. Um, and so I think a combination of all the challenges I'd had, even raising a million and a half dollars, explaining to people what the company was going to be, plus then for over a year and a half or two years, having only a couple of customers and then our biggest signed customer never even actually going live. Like I always like, I think especially when people look back on this story and I hear from investors I talk to during this period all the time, you know, really wish I had invested. Like we got so close. I'm always like, don't beat yourself up about it. I mean, the company kind of seemed like it was going to fail. I thought it was going to fail. And there's this thing that I like to say to people, which is that you actually tend people tend to get the most discouraged right after something has turned around and started to improve towards its ultimate trajectory if it's had a big disappointing like letdown in the past so what i mean is start the company super excited raise some money we're gonna kill it two years of just slogging and they're like we're getting less and less and less excited more and more and more discouraged then we went and figured out in late 2016, late 2017, a segment of the market that was really desperate for what we built, which is what you need to be successful. You need somebody who's willing to get fired for buying your product because they're just so sick of the alternatives and all this other stuff. And that was digitally focused, but small community and regional banks who were launching big digital initiatives, even though they themselves were small. That's like the perfect intersection of like without... Um, high scale, real time fraud prevention and AML and credit decision engine. They just can't do that. It'd be impossible. They would either like have to hire a ton of people or they would like go out of business because they would, you know, get into a fraud. So we found that we started signing a few of them. And that was like, that was actually what I got the most discouraged. And the reason is one, it was a long time since I had been excited. And this is a, this is like a universal thing. Like everyone goes through. It had been a year and a half or two years since we were like, this is going to work, right? Like we've been slogging for a long time. The second thing is when you start to turn around something that's been failing, the initial trajectory of the post turnaround era is very, it's very slow growth, right? Cause you, cause you, you're turning around something that's been going the wrong direction. So in the early stages of the turnaround and you, in your mind, you naturally extrapolate forward that growth trajectory when really it's going to keep it's like an accelerating thing. It's going to keep going up and to the right. Um, it's not going to continue to just kind of like trickle along. And that was this, you know, selling to these community banks that felt like that was like, is this all it's going to be? I love community banks. They're still my favorite customers. No, no offense to any of our other customers. I love community banks. 
But as a business, it didn't feel like being the fraud and KYC decision engine just for community banks. Like, just didn't feel like that would be a big business. It could be a component of the big business, which that's turned out to be the case, but didn't feel like it'd be a big business. Um, and also, oh my God, it was just a slog to even get them over the line, right? Like, so then they even sign and we have to get them implemented. And it turns out that is a slog. And it's just, it's like everything's going to be a slog. Um, but the be- the thing though is if you're actually onto something and you just put one foot in front of the, front of the other, one foot in front of the other, go to work every day and say, well, it's a slog to get our customers in implemented. How could we make it less of a slog? And you come up with all the solutions to that, which was like huge, a huge important process for us. I give a lot of credit to our former COO, um, Edwina Johnson, who just announced her new role as the GM of, I believe, uh, uh, of uh, a business at, at MoneyGram. Uh, I give a lot of credit to her for helping us figure a lot of that out. But, you know, so you go solve that problem and then you figure out how to get into slightly larger institutions and sell to fintechs and, you know, grow your accounts after you've landed them. And all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, oh, wow, these things have compounded. We're growing really fast. And that that's the story is, you know, a super exciting start, huge letdown, big slog to get our early customers going. But then once you have customers in this market that are singing your praises and saying this solved our problem, like this is a really hard problem. You might be skeptical. Some anyone can solve it. We solved it. We solved it with Alloy. That has a ton of compounding effects. We figured out all the really hard things it takes to get this done. And we just the other thing is almost everyone who worked at the company, besides Laura, who was had to wear a trillion hats as a result, was was an engineer. And so we were just building, 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 building. And eventually, we just had something that was extraordinarily robust, and it could just do so many things. And we thought it through, and all this stuff. But yeah, that that was our trajectory. I, I can keep going on that, I and mean, then you know, <laughs> then the pandemic happens. Lots of, lots of things happen from yep. there. But that that's the really the nucleus of how we got to product market fit. Gotcha. I guess it would be helpful to understand. I know you guys have customers in over forty countries. How have you built a, a global operation, and how have you found the robust product set that you built in the U.S. to be received internationally? In in particular. How does the difference in regulatory frameworks and environments impact how you approach foreign markets? Yes. So the good news for us was when we decided to go to serve global audiences, there were two things that, so we operate in 40 countries, but that just means we can serve end clients in 40 countries. We operate in the US and the UK. Um, and then we have uh, server infrastructure in a bunch of different countries. So we can serve different regulatory regimes. Um what we can do though is if you have like an australian entity we can serve that australian entity extraordinarily well because we have and that's because our product is foundationally a customization engine anyway it's a engine for customizing kyc fraud and aml policies at its core and so as long as the as long as the like our customer meaning like the bank or fintech is english speaking basically we don't have to do any customizing of our product other than integrating the third parties into our ecosystem that can serve their use case or that are their preferred vendors for fraud prevention, AML credit, whatever it is. And we're extraordinarily good at integrating third parties. That's like the big muscle that we built up. We have a five-person partnership team that makes the commercial partnerships and does the, you know, all the paperwork to make sure we have a tri-party agreement to be able to even integrate those products. We have a 10-person product engineering and support team that um, actually goes and integrates those products on a technical basis like we just do that at scale um and so that that part was easy the part that's difficult is how do you 
figure out what's important to customers in different countries. And that's why we have a team on the ground in Europe and EMEA, because they understand the nuances of like how to adapt the product to the things that matter the most to the customers there. Um, and it is really, really different. So in EMEA, um, especially, and in Europe, especially, there's a lot more customers who operate in multiple jurisdictions. It's just a way more common thing to like open up to serve a product in England and then expand it to Ireland, Scotland, Germany, you know, it's just more common to do that than here where all American American companies eventually go global, but like America is such a big market that there's just a lot, it's a, you know, there's a long time before you've kind of exhausted the American market. You have to become a really big company. So how to orchestrate, for example, KYC flows that are tailored to multiple different geographies and say, if it's a German customer, go over here. If it's a French customer, go over here. Something we do extraordinarily well, but never thought of it as a killer feature for our American customers. It's the killer feature in Europe. It's more about that stuff. And what we, I mean, we've definitely learned this to some extent the hard way is you have to go find a few people that deeply understand this stuff, put them on the ground and trust them and let them figure it out, provide them the support they need. And, you know, um, that's what we've done. So we have a, we have a team of, uh, I think, five folks in the UK that do that for us. All of them, um, I believe every single one of them with a fintech background and that really like kind of brings us that that DNA. It's been surprising how little product build it's required. And it's been equally surprising how much knowledge build it's required uh, for us to be successful. But it's something that's picking up very quickly for us. Kasha, I guess, what else excites you beyond kind of that global expansion for the next five to 10 years for Alloy? Where do you see yourself growing in terms of services, um, in terms of, uh, you know, product areas? What I've been telling people for a long time, and I just believe this more than ever is, um, two by three origination, ongoing credit fraud, AML operating system that runs that entire process. Like just stepping back for a second, financial services is a risk business. It's about risk. If all we were doing is building a little UI that shows you numbers on a screen, like anyone could do that. The thing is, those numbers are really meaningful and they're meaningful because you can use them. It was like, you know, those numbers representing your balance or payments, you can use them to commit money laundering, fraud, or you can steal money or or just lose money via credit losses. That's what makes it hard. So I think financial services is basically risk ledgering and money movement and that's like basically what financial services is um in different kind of combinations okay so we're one third one fourth one fifth we're one fifth let's let's be conservative and say we're orchestrating and operating one fifth of retail financial services which is probably the biggest or second biggest market behind healthcare in the in the world should be a bit really big like that's the only thing we need. To, we don't need to do another thing to be absolutely enormous. And this is what I expect to work on what we're working on now, just sort of extrapolated to its logical conclusion for the next 10 years. That's what I expect to spend my time on. That's what I think we'll be doing. What is in the moment, and part of that is because what's net, what's needed to do this well changes constantly. Regulations change, fraud patterns change how you can issue and manage credit changes. It's all changing and it's changing as fast now as it's ever changed ever. Uh, Maybe with the exception of 2001 and the introduction of the Patriot Act. Other than that, like this is the fastest change moment in all three of those things that there has ever been, especially in the United States. So what excites me 
is one, like working on a hard problem for the next 10 years and solving it in a really, really deep and meaningful way. That's a generic answer to be more specific. Um, helping our customers be future-proofed and manage the change through this super dynamic period. Um, meaning like actually making sure they've got the systems in place so that when regulations, fraud patterns, or, you know, ways to issue credit change, they can operate and move very quickly, um, uh, to respond also a somewhat generic answer, but I want to make sure I said both those things to get super specific. The thing I'm most excited about right now is the way FinTech companies and banks are starting to manage their fraud exposure, uh, in, in a way to minimize customer friction and Mac and, you know, stop the ever-evolving fraud landscape by pushing fraud controls um, post-origination. Historically, there's been the thought pattern has been like, we've got to stop customers who might defraud us from getting through the door at all. And if we don't do that, we we need to stop them from by monitoring their transactional activity and seeing if it's like anomalous and looks like a fraud store. And those are going to be the two tools we're going to use. And banks and fintechs have historically been bad at pretty bad at the onboarding fraud prevention because the tools uh, for all sorts of reasons. And so that's part of how we've come into existence by providing them much better access to a much better way of doing that. That's great. But unfortunately, two things are true. One is uh, in order to stop all fraud at the front door, you have to introduce a bunch of customer friction because there's a lot of different reasons to become suspicious that somebody's committing fraud and need to ask them to go into a step up verification flow of some kind or or multiple or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so being really efficient at doing that is one way to improve customer experience and not cause your customers to hate you because they're trying to sign up for your product and you can't give them an answer or you're making them jump through hoops or whatever it is. But another option is to push some of those controls to after they start using your products and actually have shown intent. They've set it, they've actually set up direct deposit, made a deposit, they're starting to swipe their card. And you two things. One is now the customer is actually like confident that they're going to get the product. They have the product, they know how to use it. So they're you're not asking them to do all of this stuff before they've even had a chance to even see if they like or actually plan to use the, the product that you're offering, whether it's a card or a brokerage account, it doesn't matter. Um, and the other thing is you get more information. Like if somebody signs up for a quick checking account and does very normal things like sets up direct deposit and then like uses their direct deposit to buy Chipotle, that's like, that's information. Like this is a very normal set of things versus if they immediately deposit money, not through direct deposit, through a, um, you know, through an external account and then try to wire that money out immediately. That's also information because that's super sketchy. And, or it's not even necessarily sketchy. It's just, it's another data point of like, okay, well, this is not only somebody who we thought might be fraudulent coming through the door. They're doing the thing that fraudsters do. So let's hold that transaction. Now let's make them go through step up verification, access control. Like let's like, like that's, let's kind of put the friction and the controls in there. And so now like you've optimally got the good customers into the process to be able to at least show you that they intend to be active customers, good customers, et cetera. You've gotten more information. And oh, by the way, if you ask the customer to do something at that step, when they're actually trying to use your product, they're going to be motivated to actually finish the process. And actually, if they are a good customer, do you know, do the document verification, do the phone, do the, you know, phone, phone-based step up, do the biometrics, like whatever it is that you're having them do. So I, I'm the most excited about um, some of the innovation going on in that space. I think we're doing 
incredible work in that space. I think we've got the most interesting product to solve for that. Um, I was just out money 2020 in, in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, I've never had so many conversations with executives, especially at large institutions that I would think wouldn't even understand this problem or know anything about it. Like the CFO at a top 20 bank, who's just like, I'm describing this to them. And they're like, that's what I'm, that's what we're trying to do. Like that right there is what we're trying to, you know, all the stuff I was just saying, that's what we're trying to do. This has been the year of like awakening uh, on what modern fraud prevention could really look like if you take a holistic and real time uh, approach. And I'm excited that, you know, this thing that I've been talking about for nine years seems to be making it into the zeitgeist finally. Uh, and I think that'll be a really good thing for us and really good thing for the company. Tasha, I guess maybe looking at the other side, uh, is there anything that's concerning you uh, about the future? Um, maybe kind of one of the top top one or two things that, that are kind of worrying you on the horizon um, it, with Alloy or just FinTech more broadly? Yeah, we'll stick to Alloy and FinTech when we answer that question. Um I, uh, uh, yeah, I think that there's some things that I actually probably won't say, um, but there are some things that are happening. I think in fintech that are a, a, a challenge. Um, I think to use, to be very general, I think the regulatory environment has changed overnight for what we call the fintech industry the sort of non-bank financial services companies. And I think this is very real, very scary. And I think, um, good needed but not good in the sense that a lot of businesses will suffer so i think that's bad um and i'll kind of leave it at that um i i also think that another good but good necessary but ultimately bad in the sense that it will hurt businesses is that like look if you, if you don't have a business model and you're offering financial services if you don't have a profitable business model and you're offering financial services products the idea that you will figure that out later and use investor dollars to build a customer base and, and then monetize that customer base and then be profitable, you just can't do that now. And and actually, that's a sometimes an unfortunate thing because sometimes it is true that the best way to build something up is to kind of have a free or monetization light, but very customer helpful product and figure out how to monetize it later in natural ways. Sometimes that is the right strategy. Um, that strategy basically... You can't run that strategy right now in fintech and so that's bad um and but i, I don't those things like long term don't worry me uh because they do they did need to happen like it was very jarring to for me at least to be to live through 2020 2021 and 2022 to some extent where it was just like every bad idea got funded every bad idea that got funded got funded again like these things weren't going to work not sustainable never never made sense often derivative or copycat products like it was just like living through it was just bizarre um and you know it made me i made a lot of people who i think feel like they kind of know how things work and not know how know what good looks like and stuff like that especially in fintech feel like they're like taking crazy pills and, and, and it led to some bad decisions because you start to go, am I, am I the crazy one? Am I the insane person who just thinks that we actually have to make more money than we spend at some point and like have to have like real business models and have to be solving real problems? Or can we just like make stuff up and get a bunch of fun? Like it, th that was just a weird time. And the, the speed with which reality has come back to us in this industry is jarring, very jarring. 
Uh, but I do think it's ultimately a very good thing. Those companies are working through a lot of them are shutting down and people trying to move, but like that's a lot of like wasted time in those people's lives. So that really does bum me out. Uh, but that stuff will, that whole thing will have shaken itself fully out in the next year. And, and, you know, it is ultimately a good thing. It's just sort of a jarring thing to go through in the moment. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I guess we like to end our, our podcast on a slightly more jovial note. So we'll do a quick, uh, lightning round here. Um, you know, a simple kind of one, two word answers to questions quick, not too much thinking about it. Great. Um, so I guess uh, to start talking or texting? Texting. Favorite day of the week? Thir- Thursday. Okay. Uh, we, I'm going to ask for some ex- explanation there. We we go, so Alloy, we, uh, we're in office Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and uh, I go to the office uh, most days, but that's like most people, like most people come in Tuesdays and Thursdays and work from home the other days. Maybe only a third of people come in the other days. Uh, and Thursdays just tend to be really good, high energy, super productive, like great, you know, team activity days. And I, I, I really, really love them. Um, I have a lot of company meetings, I have a lot of company happy hours on Thursdays. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big Thursday guy these days. Right on. Uh, favorite holiday? I think Thanksgiving. Gotcha. And then finally, favorite city other than the one you currently live in? Uh, Richmond, Virginia. Gotcha. Hometown. Outside of Richmond? Um, not Richmond and not... Are there other cities other than Richmond and New York? Um, <laughs> um, I'll say Nice, where I just got married. Nice. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, Tommy, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's been a great conversation. Hey, thanks, Trevor. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There, you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafa Ostaria. And until next time, this is your host, Trevor Prince.